You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Y'all ready to do this tonight? Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Well, I'm, uh, I'm 29 years old. Don't hate. I'm not married. <laughs> Therefore, I have not produced any grandbabies. And uh, my parents, they're about, they're not about, they're definitely in their 60s now. And uh, one of the things you'll notice is when your parents like get into their 60s, they're, they, they're no longer really that concerned about whether or not you listen to them. Uh, they're really not that concerned about whether or not you come visit them. They're concerned about one thing. And that's grandbabies. And I know that the most disappointing thing about me to my parents right now is the fact that I haven't produced any grandbabies. And my mom especially is having a hard time with this. And if you're like me and you don't get married right out of college, which is totally cool and okay, uh, you'll notice that um, your mom is going to start to do something, and, and I think this is kind of common, is she will start to adopt the babies of other people and kind of see them as her grandbabies. Um, and, and my mom has done exactly this, and so I want to introduce you uh, to a picture of baby Trey. Uh, this is, uh, this is the, the baby of a family friend of ours, uh, Amber and Anthony, and uh, they just recently had this kid, and, uh, and my mom has adopted baby Trey uh, as her grandbaby. She really thinks it's her grandbaby. And they're even trying to teach him to call my mom Gigi. Uh, and I don't even know if he talks yet, but that's what they're trying to teach him to say. And uh, so, yeah, and, and so, like, I'll go home and visit my family. And when I get home, uh, if, if baby Trey's there, then it's almost for sure my mom's holding baby Trey, which I have a picture of my mom holding baby Trey. Uh, and I, it's almost, you know, for sure she's holding baby Trey. And so I'll walk in, I'll be like, hey, mom. And uh, if she's holding baby Trey, she'll kind of look at me with this disappointed and sassy face, like, <laughs> hey. You know, and then she looks back at baby Trey. And I'll be like, well, how are you? And without even answering or anything, I can just tell from her eyes what she's thinking. She'll kind of look at me and be like, well, I'd be a whole lot better if you'd get me one of these. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I can't, you know, I can't do anything about that. And, you know, so we'll talk for a second. And then she'll kind of give me this attitude look. And again, she won't say this, but I can just see it in her face where she's like, you better be thankful that I even let you come home anymore because you haven't given me one of these grandbabies yet. Come on, baby Trey, let's go. <laughs> And then she walks off into her room. And to make it, like, even worse, she has turned my dog against me. My dog, Lloyd, um, who's a, a, a miniature, fluffy white uh, poodle. Uh, and get over it. It's awesome that he's a poodle. <laughs> but Lloyd, like, follows my mom everywhere. And so, like, my mom's, like, mad. And she walks off with baby Trey into her room. And my dog, you know, he's kind of excited to see me. But he's also paying attention to what's, what's mom doing. And so he'll watch and the watch and sees that she gives this sass and runs off. And he'll be like, mm, and then he'll run off. <laughs> After her, they get to the room, he slams, no, he didn't slam the door shut, but <laughs> the point is, baby Trey is like super cute, and I know if I brought baby Trey here, uh, that you girls would be like, oh my gosh, and fighting over, you know, who could hold baby Trey, he's so cute, you'd be saying all that stuff, the guys would be like, man, what the heck is the big deal, it's a baby, they all look the same, how about you call me when he discovers he has opposable thumbs, then he might be worth something, and then we'll come, you know, mess with this baby, but you, all, you girls say, and, and I will say this, like, not every baby is, uh, is cute. Uh, you know, if, if somebody shows you a picture of their baby, every girl's going to be like, oh my gosh, your baby is so cute. 
And, uh, but you can tell that even girls don't think all babies are cute, and here's how you tell. Uh, when a baby's like there in person, they respond one of two ways. They'll be like, every time they'll say, oh my gosh, your baby's so cute. But then they'll do one of two things. Uh, they'll, they'll either go, can I please hold your baby? You know, and that's, that means they really think it's cute. Or they'll be like, oh my gosh, your baby's cute. <sighs> Gotta go, sorry. Uh, that's how you know a baby's not cute. But anyways, the point is, baby Trey's cute, and uh, it really doesn't matter what you think. He's definitely cute. But even though he doesn't know how to dress himself, he's cute. Even though uh, he doesn't know how to feed himself, uh, and he's still drinking milk out of a bottle, he's cute. Uh, even though, honestly, I've never met a human being in my life that has as much explosive gas as that small, tiny baby, baby Trey, he's still cute. Even though he has no awesome skills yet, he's cute. The thing is, though, baby Trey, and I don't, he's like one year old, I think he just turned one, uh, he is exactly where he should be in the development process. As a baby, he is exactly where he should be in the maturation process. Now, fast forward like 20 years. If in 20 years, when baby Trey is no longer baby Trey, he's big Trey, 20, 21 years old, if in 20 years he's still crawling around in a diaper and my mom is still feeding him from a bottle, then we have a problem. Baby Trey is no longer cute. That's not normal. In fact, I, I knew y'all were going to ooh and awe at this photo, uh, so I got on Google and tried to find a photo of an old, older man dressed up in a diaper and stuff. It got really weird on Google, so <laughs> I decided not to go that route, but the, you can just kind of get that weird visual image. It's totally normal for a baby to dress like a baby. It's totally normal for a baby to make baby noises like babies make. It's totally normal for a baby to eat things that normal babies eat and to act in general like a baby. But it is not normal for a 20-year-old to do those sort of things. And here's why I share this with you. I share it because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 1. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't yet ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Listen to the way the message version of the Bible paraphrases what Paul says. It says, but for right now, friends, I'm completely frustrated by your unspiritual dealings with each other and with God. You're acting like infants in relation to Christ, capable of nothing much more than nursing at the breast. Well then, I'll nurse you since you don't seem capable of anything more. As long as you grab for what makes you feel good or makes you look important, are you really much different than a babe at the breast, content only when everything's going your way? Paul goes off on him here in chapter three. I mean, he gets a little bit hardcore. He calls them babies. Now just kind of back up for a second. Has anybody ever like called you a baby before? A baby before? How does that make you feel? Like when your brother and you, you're, you were arguing with your brother, your sister when you were younger, or you know, maybe recently, and your brother says, man, you're such a baby. How does that make you feel? Not good. Like my sister and I, she's three years older than me. I'm 29. Do the math. We still get in arguments. And when we get in arguments, almost every time her go-to is, man, you're such a baby. So I say, whatever, you're a baby. And then she says, whatever, you're a bigger baby. And I say, oh yeah? Well, could a baby do this? Bam! Who's the baby? I don't really kick my sister up, not in the last 20 years at least. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel good when somebody calls you a baby. And, and you look at this letter, you look at where Paul starts off this letter, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, totally different tone of voice. What does he say? He says, grace and peace to you. And then he goes on in verse 4 and he says, I'm so thankful for what God is doing in you. But by the time he gets to chapter 3, his tone of voice has completely changed, right? 
I mean, he's not playing around anymore. He's saying, dude, y'all are old. Y'all are too old to be acting like this. But really what he's saying is, y'all have been born again. You have crossed from death to life. The Spirit of God is living within you, and you've had plenty of time to mature, but you're still acting like babies. I mean, he's, here's basically what happens here. This, this letter is part of a series of letters between Paul and the Corinthians. And so, Paul, he's received a letter from the people in Corinth. And in that letter, the people from Corinth are asking him a bunch of different questions. And so, he's going to answer these questions. We'll get to those questions in coming weeks. But before he gets to those questions, he's thinking, you know what, I've got some things that I need to talk about with him first. Because he's gotten reports from other people about what's happening in this church. And so he says, all right, before I answer your questions, we got to deal with some other stuff first. And we're going to see that there's some crazy things that Paul deals with in this letter. We get to chapter 5, we're going to see that there was a dude in the church who was sleeping with his stepmom. And when I say sleeping, I don't mean like, oh, I had a bad dream, can I come get in bed and snuggle with you? No, it's like they were having sex. It's weird. And then he's going around and bragging about it to other people. And you see in chapter 6 that this church was full of people who were addicted to porn. This church was full of people who had alcohol problems. This church was full of people who were practicing homosexuality. There are all kinds of different things, crazy things happening in this church, but Paul doesn't go to those things first. He says, look, those things are important, and we need to get to that stuff, but there's something else that's way more important that we need to look at first. I mean, think about this. The fact that, the fact that Paul puts these other crazy things on hold in order to deal with this other issue first shows how deeply concerned he is about what we're going to see tonight. And the reason that he's so concerned about it, I mean, he calls them babies because of this issue we're going to see tonight. The reason that he's so concerned about this issue is because he saw this issue and realized that this issue had more potential than any other issue to destroy the church. And so here it is. Verse 4. He says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? So here's what's happening. The Corinthian Christians were way more excited about their preachers than they were about Jesus. Now let me kind of give you the context here. Here's what was going on in Corinth. Corinth was like the entertainment city. The Greeks that lived in Corinth, they were performance connoisseurs. They loved a good performance. They loved a good speaker. And so they wanted wise, profound, poetic sayings. They wanted elaborate stories that captured their imagination. They wanted funny jokes. They wanted to be entertained. And so they had their favorite performers. They had their favorite entertainers. This is the culture that was bleeding into the church. So Paul, four years before he writes this letter, he comes to Corinth and he plants this church. So he shows up and he's preaching the gospel. And Paul was a really good communicator. And he was passionate about what he says. If you've ever read any of the things that he says, you can tell he's passionate. Good communicator, passionate speaker. Probably one of his greatest gifts was coming in, planting a church, organize, raising up leaders, organizing the leadership, and then moving on. And after he leaves, a guy named Peter shows up. And Peter, his style was different. He was probably more liturgical, or what people back then might have called traditional. But he shows up, and he's preaching the same gospel. 
And he also was a good communicator. And then after Peter, another guy shows up named Apollos. And Apollos, he was probably the best speaker of the three. He was eloquent with his words. He was funny with his stories and his jokes. All three preaching the gospel. All three good communicators. All three different from each other. And there were probably other people as well, but this is who, this is who Paul mentions in his letter. And so what was happening is some people said, well, I love Paul. And other people said, well, I really like Peter's style better. And then other people said, well, I really connect more with Apollos and his stories. And so what began to happen was these camps began to form around these people, around these preachers. One commentator, he said, these personality cults started to form. And there were two results of that and how it affected the church. You look at verse 3, it says that there was jealousy and strife among the believers. That word jealous in the Greek is the word zelos. Everybody say zelos. The word zelos is where we get the word zealous. So in other words, to be jealous in this context is to have zeal for the wrong thing. It's misdirected zeal. Then you've got that word strife. And the word strife in Greek is the word eris. Everybody say eris. Eris. It's the word for fighting or rivalry. So here's what's happening. The Corinthians, they were so much more excited about their preachers than they were Jesus. They were so much more in love with their pastors than they were with Jesus. And as a result, these rivalries formed. People said, well, I love Paul more than this guy. My pastor is better than your pastor. My gathering, my little church is better than your church. And because these rivalries were so strong, what began to happen then was people would even talk bad about these other pastors, talk bad about these other gatherings, saying things that weren't even true. Saying things like, well, Paul, man, he's not preaching a true gospel. Or Peter, man, his style, it's weird. He's not going to be able to reach people with that. Or Apollos, man, he's shallow. You know, he's just funny and tells good stories, but there's no depth in what he's saying. And then when one of these pastors, their gathering would grow and outgrow another gathering, people got jealous because people didn't like the fact that there were other gatherings out there that were bigger than their gathering. And the result was they couldn't celebrate what God was doing through these other pastors and through these other gatherings because they were jealous. This is what was happening in Corinth. And let me, let me, let me remind you of this. Paul doesn't deal with the porn addicts first. He doesn't deal with the alcohol problems first. He doesn't deal with the people who were practicing homosexuality first. He doesn't deal with the dude who was sleeping with his mom first. He deals with this first. And here's why. It's because he knew, he knew that this issue had the most potential to rip apart and destroy the church. Let me just pause for a second here. I mean, all of you, clearly, you come to Overflow. Many of you come to this church, First Baptist Church. Some of you go to other churches. Many of you, I would suspect most of you, probably podcast other preachers and teachers. Probably all of you listen to different worship music. Some of you like Hillsong, some of you like Passion albums, some of you like Jesus Culture, some of you like them all. Let me ask you this question, though. 
What do you get more excited about? Are you more excited about the preacher or the event? Or are you more excited about Jesus? Are you more excited about or more in love with the worship music? Or are you more in love with Jesus? And if you're not sure, then let me rephrase the question. Which do you find yourself talking more about? The preacher? The event? The worship leaders? The album? Or Jesus? This is such a scary text to me. And and here's why. There's almost no other place on this planet where this can be said, but somehow it can still be said of where we live. We live in a in a celebrity Christian culture. And I'm really scared that we are much more in love with our celebrity Christians than we are with Jesus. I'm really scared that if God were to show up today, he would look us in the eye and he would say, dude, you don't love me. You don't know me. You love these famous pastors. You love the worship music. You know everything about them, but you don't love me. You don't know me. Yeah, you packed out that stadium. You packed out that stadium to hear and see them. You didn't pack out that stadium to hear and see me. You get starstruck by them, but you don't get starstruck by me. Who excites you more? Jesus or the dudes on the platform? So you look at verse 5 and he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, they're working together, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So he asked this rhetorical question. He says, what then is Apollos, or what is Paul? That's a rhetorical question in a letter, so it's not like he's standing in front of these people asking and waiting for a response. But let's just pretend like he did. What if he was standing in front of the people in Corinth, and he asked the question, what then is Apollos, what is Paul? Like, what do you think these people would have said? I mean, they probably would have been like, man, Apollos is awesome. That dude can preach. Or they'd be like, man, Paul, there's so much passion. He's like my hero. But you hear what Paul says. He answers the question. He goes, no, wrong, servants. They're servants. And if you want a more literal translation, I think, of the word that we translate here as servants, I think that word diakonos would much better be translated as this, tools. Paul's saying, no, he's a tool. Apollos, tool. Every pastor, all pastors, they're just tools, tools. Worship leaders included. Sorry, Wag Jaywood, y'all are tools. 
And a tool is worthless until someone picks it up and uses it. And these Corinthians, they were getting more excited about the tool than the one who made the tool do awesome things. We so often get so much more excited about the tool than we do about the one who's using the tool. And let me just kind of give you an example of how I feel like foolish this is. This is a painting by one of our students named Cheryl. Cheryl is currently in London serving with a church plant there all semester. She'll be back to serve at TWU um, at the BSM in in the spring. Uh, She and I and a couple of our students went to Zimbabwe a couple of years ago. I don't know if y'all can see this. Hey, Team Zimbabwe, who that was? We went to Zimbabwe, and this is actually, there's a photo somewhere. I don't know where it is, but there's a photo, this exact photo right here. And I honestly had no idea that Cheryl was a freakishly good artist. And she shows up one day with this painting, and this painting hangs in our office now, which, by the way, we have a couple paintings in our office. Um, and just so you know, I know we have a bunch of artists here, and uh, one of the reasons we're having y'all design uh, the next Overflow shirt, but if you have artwork... Uh, that you would, I mean, we would love to put your artwork on display in our office. So I know we have artists. I'm just throwing that little commercial out there. But okay, so this picture, she painted this photo. Uh, This is a photo she took while in Zimbabwe. It's unbelievable. Like when you get up close to it, and I mean, sometimes like photos, pictures, paintings from far away look awesome, but the closer you get, you're like, ooh, you know? But this the closer you get, the more detail you see. I mean, the eyeballs, there's like, you can even see, like if you look at the actual photo, you can see what's reflected in the eyeballs in this painting. It's awesome. I mean, the strokes and everything. And I would imagine that she used uh, a paintbrush probably like this, not one of those big, you know, wall paintbrushes, probably something like this. I stole this from another part of the church earlier today. So a little bitty paintbrush. And, And here's what I want us to see. Like, how weird would it be if I went up to this photo, let's pretend Cheryl's right here, and she's just finished painting, she's holding the paintbrush, and I walk up and I'm like, oh my gosh, that painting is ridiculous. Like, it's awesome, which that is what I did when I saw it. Kind of look up and down the painting, and I look at Cheryl, and I look at the paintbrush, and I say, that paintbrush is awesome. (laughs) Like, that paintbrush has powers. Holy cow, man, where'd you get that paintbrush? Can I take a picture with that paintbrush? (laughs) Can I have the paintbrush? I mean, for us to be more excited about our pastors than we are about Jesus is about as dumb as being more excited about this paintbrush than you are the artist. And I think what Paul's trying to say here is don't Don't be excited about the paintbrush. Be excited about the artist. Don't be excited about your pastor. Be excited about the God who has the power to use your tool of a pastor. And you look at what he says. He says, servants. What are they? They're servants or tools through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Do you see that in there? Verse 5. They're servants or tools through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. He says, through whom you believed. There's a huge truth to pull from this text. People come to believe in Jesus through us. Like, that's crazy when you think about it. I find that so hard to believe 
Because honestly, I know for a fact I'm an idiot. I say stupid things. I do stupid things. And I can't read very good. But God, stop waving your hand back there in the back like, preach, preach. Yeah, you're an idiot. No, I'm not. I don't appreciate that. Intern, you're fired. (laughs) But people can believe in Jesus through me. Do you realize what this is saying? God uses people like you to lead people to him. And when you consider that in the context of what we've been talking about the past two weeks, there's only two kinds of people in this world, dead people and alive people. And the only thing that separates the two is Jesus. So it means that God can use people like you to raise dead people to life. And you know what's crazy? We're always saying, God, show me a miracle. Show me, let me see a miracle. Holy cow! We're seeing miracles happen all the time when God uses people like us to lead people to him, find life from death. How did God call me today? Say that he led a guy to Christ today. A guy became a Christian. A student that's here tonight became a Christian today. Crossed from death to life. That is a miracle. So he says, servants, tools through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. That last part, as the Lord assigned to each. First thing you need to see in that is this. Pastors didn't do anything to earn their position. Pastors haven't done anything to earn the place to stand up on the platform in front of people and teach. Uh, D.A. Carson, he said, these servants or pastors have not gained their status by ambition and natural gift as if in God's world there can be any gift that he himself hasn't given. These pastors have have gained their position by specific assignment from the Lord. But the second thing you need to see where he says, as the Lord assigns to each, you need to see this. Do you realize that God has given you a specific assignment? God has specifically assigned certain people to you so that you can lead them to him. But you take it even further. God has given all of us specific assignments. In other words, like we are all servants. We are all tools. I'm a tool. You're a tool. You're a tool. You're definitely a tool. (laughs) You're a tool. We're all tools. And I know when I say tools, some of us think like, well, I must be a chainsaw because that's a stinking awesome tool. (laughs) You know, your mind might go to a chainsaw, but the reality is, and the reality is you might be a chainsaw, but you might just be a hammer. You might be a shovel. You might be a hoe. I don't know. You're tools. (laughs) Garden hoe. Either way, it's not the tool that deserves praise. It's the one using the tool. And the fact that God can use us is absolutely amazing. And and you know what? The fact that God can use us and is using us forces us to ask two questions. One, what are we building? And two, what are we building on? You look at verse 10, and he says, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You look at what he he says there in, uh, in verse 11. He says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is who? Jesus. 
So in other words, there's only one thing to build a church on, and that's Jesus. There's only one thing to build your life on, and that's Jesus. Anything else that you build yourself, your life on, or we build our church on, or we build this ministry on, it will fall apart. I mean, when it comes to the church, if the foundation is Jesus, then it'll stand. But if the foundation is anything else, if the foundation is the pastor, or if the foundation is the worship leader, or anything else, then when that person moves, or that person dies, or that person screws up, then everything's going to fall apart. And, and consider your life. When it comes to your life, if the foundation of your life is Jesus, then it doesn't matter what happens to you. You will be standing on something that's solid and standing on something that cannot be moved. But if the foundation of your life is something else, if it's a relationship you have with a girl or with a boy, or if it's the money that you have, or if, if it's the fraternity that you're in, or if it's the goals and ambitions that you have set for yourself, then when that thing falls apart, and it will fall apart, then your life is going to fall apart. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you right now, that's what you're going through. That's what you're experiencing. So you have to ask the question, what are we building on? What are you building on? What is the foundation that you are building on? And you look at what he says, kind of back up just a little bit. The end of verse 10, he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. And then he goes on to say basically this. You need to be cautious in how you build because everything that you build is going to be tested. And so you have to ask the question, okay, what are you building? What are we building? What are we building here? Are we trying to build an empire or are we trying to build God's kingdom? God hates it when people try to build an empire or a monument to themselves. God hates it when people try to make a name for themselves. You can go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 11, and you see the story of the Tower of Babel. And I don't know how familiar you are with this story, but a bunch of people get together and they decide, you know what, let's build this massively huge tower that you can see from forever far away. And let's make a name for ourselves. It literally says that. Let's make a name for ourselves. And prior to this, there were no nations, there were no uh, languages, but one. And this is when God comes in and says, yeah, that's not happening. Because I didn't create you to make a name for yourself. And so he confuses them. He gives them all these different languages. And he spreads them out all over the earth. Why was God so frustrated in that moment? It's because we weren't created to make a name for ourselves. We were created to make a name for him. We were created to make him famous. And you look at Romans chapter 11, verse 36, it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In other words, God created everything. God sustains everything. And everything exists to bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So what are we building? An empire or a kingdom? Are we trying to make overflow famous or are we trying to make Jesus famous? I mean, I, we're not in this to build an empire. We're in this to build a kingdom. I love the fact that this room is filling up more and more every semester. It's awesome. But we're not in this so that this room will be full. Do you realize that? 
We're in this in hopes that one day heaven is thinking packed and full. So what are we building? But just think about yourself as well. What are you building? Are you trying to make a name for yourself or are you trying to make a name for Jesus? Look at verse 16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Four times you see the word you. Four times it's plural. That's not a singular you. If you look deeper, it's a plural you. Four times. In other words, we collectively are God's temple. We are God's family. And our family is a lot bigger than just overflow or First Baptist Church. And we need to start acting like that. We're not in competition with other churches in town. We are fighting the same battle that they're fighting. We're fighting it with them together. And think about this. You know, I don't know if you watched the news at all this week, but this week, this Sunday, this past Sunday morning, in Pakistan, uh, the, uh, supposedly the largest single attack on Christians happened this Sunday morning in northern Pakistan. Suicide bombers went into this church and blew the place up, and I think 82 Christians were killed. Our family was attacked. The church was attacked. Terrorists attacked our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world, people we have a close connection with because of Jesus. Now, I want to ask you this question. Consider the damage done to the church and our family by these terrorists. Consider the damage to our family, consider the damage to the movement of God in that area by these terrorists. And then think about this. When we talk bad about other pastors and other churches, in the grand scheme of things, how is that any different than what those terrorists did? How is it any less damaging? We're crippling ourselves. When you look at verse 18, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. We think we're awesome, but we're not if we're putting down other churches and other pastors. We think we're awesome, but we're not if we're trying to fight alone. That's not awesome and that's not wise. It's dumb and it's foolish. If their foundation is Jesus and our foundation is Jesus, holy cow, we're all standing on the same thing. We're all being held up by the same thing. We're all trying to build the same structure. We're all fighting for the same thing. And we're all tools being used by the same Lord. True wisdom, true knowledge, 
And connecting it back to Paul, calling them babies, and maybe us babies too, true maturity is seen and marked by whether or not we understand this. Do you brag about your preacher or your worship leader, or do you brag about Jesus? Do you realize that you're just a tool? That they're just tools? That I'm just a tool? And that it's just by God's grace that he's chosen to use us tools to do awesome things? Do you realize that? You look at verse 21 and he says, So let no one boast in men. Why would anyone boast in a man? Or why would anyone boast in themselves when they have Jesus? Why would any of us boast in anything else when we have Jesus? Don't get excited about the paintbrush. Get excited about the artist. I want to look at verse 9. Go back to verse 9. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. He says, you are God's field. In other words, God grows his church. He's the one who's growing this. Let there be no mistake in that. He's the one who's growing this. Then it says, you are God's building. In other words, what he's saying is, God builds his church. He's the one who's building this. Let there be no mistake in that. He's the one who's building this. And God is doing some amazing things. And he doesn't need me, and he doesn't need you. But look at the first part of that verse. What's it say? It says, we are God's fellow workers. It's not the president of the United States who is calling you up and saying, hey, come work with me. It's not Bill Gates or Donald Trump calling you up and saying, hey, come work with me. It's not the CEO of your dream company calling you up and saying, hey, come work with me. It's the God of the universe who has called you out and who has said, come work with me. You have an amazing purpose. You have an amazing calling. You have amazing responsibility. You exist for a reason. And Paul knew the Corinthians needed to see this. We need to see this, and we need to learn to live in these truths. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.